Good morning. For those of you who are still out in the lobby, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks, and I'm delighted to be uh, given the privilege this morning of opening up God's word for us or leading us as we open up and dive into God word, God's word together. I'm going to start with a story that you may have heard me tell before. It's not my story, but it's one of my favorite stories from the church, and so I have used it a couple of times in sermons. It comes from our friends at the Salvation Army. <clears throat> the Salvation Army, which most of you will be familiar with, uh, was started in the 1860s by a Methodist minister by the name of William Booth. Now, over the ensuing 40 years, it went from being a small local mission to being a large international uh, ministry and helping organization with thousands and thousands uh, of people involved all over the world. And uh, <clears throat> by that time in the early 1900s, William Booth was uh, getting older. He was in his 70s. In fact, he passed away in 1912 at the age of 83. But there's a story that the Salvation Army folks have about William Booth and a telegram that he sent. Now, there are different versions of the story. Um, in one version of the story, the uh, Salvation Army would have a big annual conference every year near Christmas, and there came a year where, because of failing health, Booth was unable to attend for the first time, so he sent a telegram to be read at the conference. Um, but another version of the story has him uh, annually sending out a telegram of encouragement to all of the workers all over the world uh, with the Salvation Army. But either way, the key to the story is, um, as some of you will know, when you send a telegram, the longer the telegram is, the more you pay to have it sent out to the places where it's going out to. And so not having a great deal of financial resources to work with, Booth um, felt led to send a one-word telegram. And as he spoke to the Holy Spirit and searched for the one word that would for him offer encouragement to all of those salvation workers all over the world, uh, doing as Christ followers what they were doing, the one word that Booth chose was the word others. He just sent a telegram out that said others. Now, the story about Booth may or may not be true, but <clears throat> like many stories, whether it's true or not, it absolutely contains truth. We're, um, we're in week seven of an eight-week series on the book of Colossians, um, and we've come to, uh, last week, uh, Jack uh, Campbell preached on the first part of chapter three. This morning, I want to read you a passage from the end of chapter three and just the very beginning of chapter four. This is Colossians 3, 18 to Colossians 4, 1. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. That's all the time we've got for this morning. <laughs> Husb <laughs> husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, quick recap of where we've been in this um, letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, to the Colossians. Um, Paul uh, preached a gospel, the, the disciples preached a gospel, the gospel that they had brought and, and used to create followers of Christ and to create churches all over the eastern part of the Mediterranean, the gospel was a gospel of a relationship, a personal, real, present-in-the-moment relationship with the risen Lord. And the disciples taught us that, and followers of Jesus experienced, that um, when they became followers of Christ, they received this fantastic gift of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They received what many scholars have referred to as kind of a mystical union with Christ, a close um, relationship with Christ. Now, that's the gospel that Paul had preached and that his disciple Epaphras had preached and which Epaphras had preached when he had set up the church at Colossae. But by the time this letter is written in Colossae and in many other churches, there was this problem that over time, false teachers had come in, and they'd encouraged the churches to kind of go back to a much narrower, old-school version of what religion and life and relationship with God was about, which was based on human wisdom, and it essentially said, as far as theological concepts and understanding of God goes, you have to be kind of a special class of people to understand that. But what's important for you ordinary followers of Jesus is that there are very strict rules you need to be following. There are rules in your life, rules in your, in your worship. There are uh, very specific rituals that need to be followed. Uh, there are very specific regulations. There's a lot that you have to do in order to be doing this, um, you know, being a Christian right and Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians as a corrective to all of that nonsense. Paul wrote to say, to remind them, that their faith is all about Christ himself, about what he's done, about who he is, about who we are in relationship with him. And he wrote to remind them that all of the power for everything we do as individual followers of Christ and as the church, every, the power for all of that doesn't come from us. It comes from our union with him. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And that's why we've named this series, we've given this eight-week series a series title, which is based on uh, a wonderful phrase that Paul uses in chapter 2 where he says, this is a really great, this is, an, this is the most important and amazing mystery that's ever been revealed to man. And the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, when you're reading your Bible, particularly when you, you'll see this if you are reading a paper copy of the Bible and you come to chapter 3, 
Um, throughout the Bible, probably in all of the paper copies or versions of the Bible that you have occasion to read, there will be the text and there will be chapters and verses. We know from a scholarship point of view that those chapters and verses weren't put in at the time of the original writings, but they were added by the church later. But the versions that you read also will have these kind of headings over topics. And those are very helpful because they help us to be able to find things in the text. But it's important to understand as Bible people, as people who believe that the Bible is the word of God, that those headings are what we theology and, and church and Bible nerds call extra canonical. They're not understood by anyone to be the inspired word of God. And so they're a little bit challenging. You have to be careful about those headings that appear over different sections of the Bible because the editors of that translation may have felt that the most important thing or the focus of that passage was one thing, and that's why they put that heading there. And it's not necessarily the case that that's where we should be focusing our attention. <clears throat> For instance, if you open up most versions of uh, paper copies, versions of the, of the Bible, and turn to Colossians chapter 3, the passage that Jack read last week will probably have a heading over it that says something like, rules for holy living. And when you come to the passage that I just read to you this morning, in most of your versions of the Bible, there will be a little heading over this section which says, <clears throat> rules for Christian households. Now, this is problematic. And it's problematic because um, they certainly look like rules. Like if you read chapter 3, this looks like a list of rules. It's a checklist of things we should do as Christians and things that we shouldn't do as Christians. And it's an impressive list, particularly the checklist of don'ts. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, obscenity, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, lying. And then when you get to the passage that I read this morning, looks like there's some rules in there. Rules for wives, rules for husbands, rules for children, rules for parents, rules for slaves, rules for masters. So what gives? What's the deal with Paul writing this letter to the church at Colossae and saying, you guys have got this all wrong if you're listening to false teachers who are telling you that this is all about a bunch of rules and regulations. This is about a living relationship in union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but by the way, here are the rules. It can look on the face of it as if that's what's happening here. And the key to unpacking this seeming contradiction is to ask the question, is the, are the things that are set out in passage uh, chapter 3, are they designed to be descriptive or prescriptive? Are they a description of what Christ, life in Christ does and will look like naturally? Are they a description of the Christian life? Or they, are they a prescription for Christian life? Are they things where Paul says, look, in order to, to be a Christian, you need to be doing these things. Well, the problem with that kind of analysis is that you need to understand who and what Paul is. And I, I have a, 
master's of divinity degree. I spent seven years in seminary. I'm not as bright as some of the other kids. But um, I, I spent a lot of time studying Paul's writings, and it took me a long time to really wrap my head around the fact that at his core, Paul is a pastor. He's a pastor. He's not primarily a Christian theologian. Now, arguably, he's the greatest, first and greatest theologian of the church. He's not primarily a theologian. And he's not primarily an ethicist. He's not primarily somebody whose job it is to lay out moral rules, you know, do this, do that, to prescribe what's moral and what's not moral. He just happens to be the most well-read ethicist in the history of, you know, the last 2,000 years. Um, but he's not primarily an ethicist. No, primarily he's a pastor. He writes the things that he writes to real people in real places that he really knows and loves and really wants to engage with in the, the present reality of their lives at the times that they're in. And that's not to say that, <clears throat> that there's no universal application of the things that he says, but you need to understand what he's trying to accomplish in his writing, right? He's providing information and explanation to the people he's writing to, but he's providing encouragement and advice, and he's also providing admonishment and correction. He's doing all of those things. So the answer to, is Paul's writing primarily descriptive or prescriptive is in almost every, well, in every single case, if you read his letters in their entirety, you will see that it's both. Paul, like no other writer I've ever encountered, has this way of writing in which he, he effortlessly says, look, Christ is doing this thing in you. He's doing this thing in you, and he's going to keep doing this thing in you, and he will finish the work of doing this thing in you, of transforming you, of making you into the you that he desires you to be. But Paul effortlessly then switches to saying, therefore, participate in this. Participate in this wonderful thing that God is doing in you. Cast off the way you used to live. Put on the clothes of this new way of living that uh, Christ is enabling you to experience. It's both. But his contention is always that where it comes from isn't from us intellectually deciding, well, these are the six things I need to do. It comes from our union with Christ. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, he famously, when he's writing the Corinthians, he says, look, Helbert says, look, I'm not a theologian or an ethicist. Don't pin that on me. What he says is, when I was there teaching with you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so understanding who Paul is and the way he writes is very helpful to our approaching this passage in a chapter 3. But it still leaves us with the question, what in particular is Paul saying in this passage? 
Well, I think that what Paul is saying is this. If our union with Christ has the potential to transform us into the better versions of ourselves that God has intended us to be, where that is going to play out isn't primarily in the orthodoxy of our beliefs or in the purity of our piety or in the beauty of our rituals. We may have very orthodox beliefs and we may be very pious um, in our lives and we may have beautiful rituals, but that's not, those aren't the primary places where this union with Christ plays itself out. Paul is saying it plays itself out in our relationships with other people. That's where the fruit of the Spirit grows and is born and comes out. In our relationships with other people, and not surprisingly, primarily in our relationships with the people who are closest to us, our husbands and our wives and our children and our parents and our employers and our employees. That's where it plays out. That's what William Booth was saying. When William Booth wrote that telegram, summing up and encouraging all of those followers of Christ, all of those workers in the field for Christ, he wanted to, in one word, say, look, this is what it looks like for us to be Christ's followers. What he said is, others. That sums it up in one word. The focus of our life and ministry as followers of Jesus Christ is to be on other people, on putting the needs, and this is hard teaching, on putting the needs and desires and priorities and interests of others ahead of our own. Now, this is hard teaching, and you won't always hear every preacher in every church, in every context, in every denomination, in every school preach this gospel. You won't necessarily hear it in a lot of places, and you may hear some who will say, oh, that's a you know, radical, left-wing, liberal, modernist, you know, watering down to the gospel version of things. But I have to tell you, it isn't an idea that I or Paul are making up in the letter to the Colossians. Uh, let's um, take a look at some scripture. In this case, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 22. 34 to 40. This is a story about a guy you may have heard about named Jesus. And it says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus said, is you know, an expert on the law, a guy who knows all 613 of the rules and regulations of, the, <clears throat> of uh, Second Temple Judaism, comes to him and says, there's 613 rules and regulations. Which one's the best? Which is the, the top one? And Jesus said, well, he says extra two extraordinary things. He says, first of all, <clears throat> the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
But he also does this, I don't know, inexplicable thing. The guy didn't say, uh, there's 613 rules. Could you tell me the top two? He doesn't ask for the top two. He asks what the greatest commandment is. But God, when asked that question, feels that it's important to point out that you can't separate number one and number two from each other. He says, the greatest commandment is to love God. But the second commandment is very close. It's, it's like it, and that is to love your neighbor. For Christ, the two go hand in hand. They go together. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, all those other 611 rules or whatever, they're just working out some of the details of these first two. You get these first two right, and the rest will kind of naturally flow from that. On the night that he was betrayed, uh, Jesus uh, had dinner with his disciples. And uh, in John's gospel, we get this fairly lengthy account of the conversation that he had with them. And at the point in the evening, after they've had the supper, and Judas, the betrayer, has left the room, Jesus, Jesus then launches into kind of his farewell address to his disciples. And it's an important farewell address because he knows that later that evening he's going to be arrested, tried, beaten, uh, crucified, and is going to die. And he starts out his final instructions to his disciples this way. Listen, this is at John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. It says, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified with him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So a new command I give you. Don't watch pornography. Oh, wait, sorry, that's a different translation. Oh, a new uh, command I give you. Um, uh, Don't hang out with non-Christians. No, that doesn't seem to be the one. It's a new command I give you. Love one another. That's the command that he gives. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's odd. He doesn't say, adopt really orthodox beliefs. Practice intense personal piety. Get the rituals of church and religion just right. Be really clear about your theology and your doctrine and your personal salvation. And if you do that, people will know you're my disciples. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, love one another and people will know that you're my disciples. This is a really, really critical, critical passage. So now we've got the problem. We come back to the problem of the church at Colossae, that, that Paul is 
that Paul loves and wants to get on the right track, wants to bring back to this first love um, in Christ, right? Because what had happened in Colossae is that they'd gotten really good at orthodox beliefs and and right uh, following all the rules strictly and and doing just the right ritual things during their worship and not doing the wrong ritual things. And they missed the point entirely. And Paul writes to say, look, the litmus test for whether you're in Christ and Christ is in you is going to be love. And Colossians isn't the first place Paul writes about this or the only place he writes about it in lots of other places. Pretty famously in 1 Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians 12... Paul is doing some stuff on how the church is set up and is organized and how it's going to work, and he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he, he makes this excellent argument where he says, look, in the church, there's going to be all kinds of people with different gifts. Not everybody's going to have all the gifts. This guy will be good at this. This person will be gifted to do this. This person will be gifted. Not everybody has to have the same gifts because we're one body and we're all in this working at this together. That's what he says. That's essentially what he teaches in First uh, Corinthians 12. But he says, no matter what gift you've got, no matter what part of the body you are, there is this one thing which is going to characterize you as a follower of Jesus. And this brings us to 1 Corinthians 13, which, uh, anybody here been to a wedding ever, anywhere, at any time? Um, I'm both delighted and heartbroken that We've convinced ourselves that this is a passage about, you know, marital life. This is, a, this is an explanation to a church of why love for each other is the most important thing and trumps all of the other stuff. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 8. Think about the Colossians and what we know about the way they were doing church when you hear this letter to the Corinthians because the Corinthians were also doing it badly. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And when Jesus talks about love, when Paul talks about love, they're not talking about a vague kind of a, kind of a you know, I like this person and, you know, and as long as they don't infringe on me too much, um, I'm going to be okay with them. But if they cross me, then, well, you know, then they're not my friend anymore. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love 
never fails. But where there are prophecies, they're going to cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Paul then goes on to talk about Christ's coming again, right? And he makes it very clear, all of this other stuff, the orthodoxy of our beliefs, the purity of our piety, the rightness of our rituals, all that stuff is going to pass away. And what's going to be left when we're standing in front of and feeling the embrace of Christ as well as experiencing the judgment of God, what's going to matter is Christ and our relationship with him. What is going to matter is love. Now, I still think there's a problem with uh, Colossians 3. And the problem is this. Um, We refer to um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength as the great commandment. It's only one commandment or two if you include love others, but they're still commandments. Like, these are still rules. So, is it still the case that Jesus and Paul are saying, we'll give you a couple of simple, easy-to-remember rules, but now you have to go and do those two things in order to have right relationship with me? Right? It still boils down to, is it up to us or is it up to God? But the difference lies in, the difference between between the Pharisees in Jesus' time and the false teachers in Colossae and the people over the ensuing 2,000 years and the bad pastors who have said, you have to do these things in order to make your relationship with God right. The difference between that and what Jesus taught and what Paul is writing about, what Paul is saying to the Colossians is that he's saying the inclination to love other people the will to love other people, the power to love other people, these come from Christ himself. They come from our spiritual union with Christ. And that's what Christ taught as well. I'm hitting you with a lot of scripture this morning, something for which I feel I don't ever need to apologize at all. But let's go to John 15 uh, verses 5 to 13. This is further on in, in, in Jesus' explanation to his, his followers about how this is going to work. And he says, look, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, it's that mystical union with Christ. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and in my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have also kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Paul, or 
Jesus in this passage talks about how joyful it is for God, how much to God's glory it is when our union with Christ, our being in Christ and having Christ in us bears fruit. He's talking about a vine and branches and he extends the metaphor to say that we bear fruit. This union, this relationship bears fruit. And of course, Paul uses this language. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Most of you will be familiar with the passage in Galatians 5, right? Paul lists nine fruit of the Spirit. Nine things that grow in, up, and out of us when we are maintaining that relationship with Christ himself. And they grow up out of us and and are produced and, and demonstrated in the world because of Christ's presence and power in our lives. They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know if you noticed, but many of those were listed in the passage at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 that Jack read uh, to us last week. Let's take a look at that passage again, just to bring us back into the context of our Colossians passage. This is Colossians 3, 9 to 17. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues put on love. Over all of them put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. If you want to know what should I take from this passage at the end of Colossians chapter 3, that talks about wives and husbands and parents and children and slaves and masters. You need to understand where it shows up in the letter that Paul's writing. Paul's trajectory as he arrives at the end of chapter 3 is saying, look, if you're in union with Christ, then all of these wonderful manifestations of love are going to flow out of you. Love and peace and kindness and forbearance and forgiveness and gentleness and self-control. These things are going to flow out of you. And then he brings us to husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters. And what he's saying is, all of these relationships should be characterized by this stuff, by these fruits of the Spirit, by love. 
These things, patience, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, forbearance, putting other people's needs first, putting others ahead of you, this stuff should be showing up in your primary relationships. This passage is not about who is the boss of who. It's not a passage about relational hierarchy. It's not a passage about relational hierarchy. Who gets to tell who what to do. It's not even a passage about God's social order. It isn't a passage which Paul has included to reveal to us what God has revealed to him about the way in which God wants society to be structured so that it can operate. It's not a passage about that. It's a passage which says, you're in union with Christ, who is love incarnate, who is love himself, and he's changing you to be the better version of yourself that he intends. And the way you will see fruit in that is that you will be a person who demonstrates kindness and gentleness and and. Uh, forgiveness. You'll be a person who doesn't put himself or herself first. You'll be a person who thinks about other people first. And Paul goes on to say, and where that's going to land first and foremost in your lives, wives, is in the way you deal with your husbands. And husbands, it is going to land and show up and manifest itself in your lives in the way that you deal with your wives. And children, it's going to show up in the way that you you feel and act towards your parents, and it's going to show up parents in the way that you feel and act towards your kids. And the same thing, you know, in the economy, in the workplace, in, in work relationships. This passage is about loving other people in the same sacrificial way that Christ loves us. It's a passage about putting others first. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Paul identifies one source and only one source for this kind of love. It's not humanist philosophy. It's not, you know, your Aunt Mabel, wise as she was. It's not uh, Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha. There is only one source for this kind of love, and it's Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who we have the privilege of being in and having inside of us. When we started this series back in July, I had the privilege of, of preaching the first sermon in the series, and you recall that at the end of this, this sermon, um, Brenda, Brenda alluded to this, I gave you an assignment as an application, which was spend as much time as possible one-on-one -on -one in open listening conversation with Christ. And I encouraged you to use the contemplative prayer practice of imagining yourself sitting physically across from Jesus as you talk to him, whether that be across a living room or across a table or, uh, you know, across from one end of a canoe to another or across a campfire. Um, remember how Jesus in his, his um, address to his, his um, disciples says, a new command I give you, love one another? And we all kind of do a double take and go, I don't think that's new, Jesus. That kind of seems to be what God's been doing all along. Fair enough. And so I, <clears throat> I'm not Jesus, but I'm prepared to say to you a new sermon application I give you, 
Keep doing that thing I asked you to do at the beginning of the summer. Keep seeking the face of Christ. Seek his presence in your lives. Listen to him. Let go to him. Let him form you into this better person. We need more Jesus, more intimately, more often. Jesus said, seek me and my kingdom and the rest will be added to you. We don't need to become better people so that we can be closer to God. We need to be closer to God in Christ so that he can make us into better people. Better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better employers, and better employees. If we do that, if we surrender to him and let him make those change in us, what will people see in us? I wonder what they'll see. They'll see what Paul talks about in his letter. They will see Christ in us, the hope of glory.